morning. The scripture for today is from Exodus 32, uh, passages 1 through 14, that can be found on page 86 of the Pew Bibles. That's Exodus 32, passages 1 through 14. The Golden Calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented um, uh, fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. We're focusing and meditating and reflecting together on the gift and the reality and the action of Christian worship. We're going to be doing that for several weeks, and Phil would have started us off last week with the notion that we are wired for worship. When it comes to, uh, when it comes to worship, there's quite a, quite a lot of drama uh, connected to, to this topic. And I want to start this morning by, um, by just uh, identifying that drama. The first um, dramatic reality connected to worship is portrayed for us in the scriptures in various episodes where God's people encounter the living God in ways that are quite unexpected, uh, life-changing, uh, 
uh, dramatic, if you want. And even those of you who aren't familiar uh, with the examples that I'm going to give you now, um, they are quite profound and powerful stories. And they lead to places of reflecting and thinking and living that, um, that are intriguing for us. One line that captivated my thinking a number of years ago is the line in the prophet Zechariah, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the world be silent before him. It's not how I was taught about worship, but it somehow goes to the core of what it means to humble yourself, to bow down for all of creation, to be in a posture of worship and adoration and listening. A second is the story of Moses when he encounters God in the burning bush and he's told that he needs to take off his shoes. Now, I would be comfortable with taking off my socks, but not my shoes. But Moses has to take off his shoes and he's told because the ground that he is standing on is holy ground. It's not normal ground. This isn't the usual kind of experience. This isn't the expected kind of experience. This is something from a different sphere, from a (laughs) different reality. And yet a third dynamic encounter, an encounter that moves towards worship and intimacy with God is the story of the prophet Elijah who is hiding in the cave and God appears to him. But unexpectedly, God does not appear or speak to Elijah in the drama of the fire, this fiery cloud. Does not encounter Elijah in the earthquake. He does not encounter Elijah in any of the ways that Elijah was looking to encounter God. Instead, it says that God comes to Elijah speaks to Elijah in the quiet, in the silence, in the stillness. And these three encounters kind of create a a drama of worship, a drama of worship that it would be wonderful for all of us and each of us to kind of come to a deeper understanding and a deeper and even more common experience as we journey in our life with God, the one whom we worship. The other side of worship and the drama of worship has to do with the quality and the clarity and what we've come to understand or what we're still not really understanding when it comes to our worship. William Placker, the American theologian, writes this pretty dramatically. He says that in contemporary American society, the dominant images of divinity, God, and success in community are in some respects radically unchristian. It cannot be taken for granted any longer that Christians generally remember or even ever really understood the sort of God in whom we believe and the sort of people that we are called to be. Placker's saying not only do we not really understand who God is, 
we also don't, as a result, understand the kind of people that we're supposed to be formed by serving and worshiping that God. We're talking about worship, and Christians have come to believe that our discipleship and our worship go together. This is not a recent revelation in the church, although it is something that is being revived even as we speak in the church. We've come to believe that our following of Jesus and being captivated and transformed by him as the true living exhibition of life with God and the practices of worship are closely and intimately connected to each other. What we worship or who we worship is what we believe and who we will become. How we pray is how we live, and how we live is how we pray. From the earliest of times in the early church, Christians had this insight that our worship and our prayer are active living relationship and communication with God goes to the deepest of our character and personal formation. A more recent turn on this is to talk about what we desire and or what we love and to see the relationship and the formation of what we desire and what we love connected to the God who we desire and who we love. In other words, we love what we worship and we worship what we love. This means that the sanctuary for us, the the morning service, the evening service, the community gathered together is the ongoing place where this dramatic and dynamic transformation takes place in the grandest and most decisive ways. Even though our habit of worship sometimes just becomes that, a bad habit of worship, still this morning we want to be encouraged that the habits and practices of worship are gifts of God's Spirit in order to help us encounter the living God, in order to grow deeper in our understanding of who God is, in order for us to take on for ourselves the implications of who God is for our lives. Connected to this relationship is the notion of tension or the notion of struggle, that that there's something going on between narratives, between two stories, between two worldviews, between two styles of living and loving. You could say a tension between the kingdom and the world, a tension between heaven or hell, the tension between God or worshiping someone or something else. The tension between who you're coming up with on your own or what you are actually truly called and created to be as a human being. This idea of attention in worship, liturgical tension, kind of flies in the face of our common notion that life is sort of neutral, 
That everything that we enter into, every activity, every place that we enter into is kind of neutral and that, that our true calling in life is to sort of pick and choose the things that we see along the way that will kind of add value or add color or add quality to who we want to be or the story that we see ourselves writing for ourselves or the design of the kind of people that we want to become. That all these things are available to us and that we have this opportunity because we are free beings just to take what we want to fit with the story or the narrative that we've come up with ourselves. This tension is articulated for us in a kind of shocking ways in the two scriptures that have dominated our worship this morning. The call to worship of Psalm 115 and the shocking story of Moses' brother Aaron, the priest, helping Israel to come up with the idol of the golden calf. In Psalm 115, it starts off in a kind of an unusual way, and I don't know if it caught your attention this morning. Maybe not, and we're about forgiveness, and so that's fine. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but <clears throat> to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Here's the, the ba basic shocking insight of this passage. That the focus and attention of our worship can actually be somewhere else other than directed to God. That our adoration or what we love or what we commit to or what we are most passionate about can actually be, even in the sanctuary, the context of the psalm, even in the place of worship, it can actually be directed somewhere else. In verse 8 of the psalm, it says this after talking about the making of idols. Those who make them will be like them, and so, all, so will all who trust in them. What the psalmist seems to be saying is that the great temptation that we have as human beings created in God's image, wired for worship, the great temptation that we have ongoing is actually to worship ourselves actually to focus on ourselves, actually to esteem ourselves and to make ourselves famous because of our abilities to create, to build, to design, to do something that is unique. That's the embarrassing tension as we sit together in this place, consciously in the presence of God, that we could actually be distracted in the sanctuary and on the sidewalk, that we could actually be distracted to pay more attention, to give more attention, to give more worth to ourselves than we do to God. In Exodus 32 is a story, the famous story of the making of the golden calf. Victor Hamilton a esteemed Old Testament scholar, now retired, says in a few words his 
ultimate description of what's taking place here when he says these words, which mostly, most days, commentary language does not jump off the page to me. But in this particular week, it did. He writes this, we can produce God. That's where the making of the golden calf, which Aaron then encourages Israel to worship and to place their trust in, Victor Hamilton, who spent a career in the book of Exodus, says, that's our temptation. And in some way, shape, or form, that's actually our ability, that we actually can produce in our lives God. The disciple Stephen, who's quoted in the book of Acts, the one who was stoned to death, says this in his famous sermon, They held, quote, referring to this passage of Exodus, they held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. Not to us, Lord. Not to us be the glory. But the embarrassing reality when we come to worship is a lot of times the drama is about us. It is about our preoccupations. It is about some of our deepest, even if they're distorted, desires and plans. And here's the critical thing about this, that we are called to worship the living God, but we are constantly tempted to worship the human self. This reminds me of what the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox writer Anthony Bloom once famously said in a personal reflection, he said this, I discovered that if happiness is aimless, it's unbearable. If happiness is aimless, it becomes unbearable. And what he's putting his finger on is this temptation that we have to come up with constructs of reality, with goals of reality, with definitions of fulfillment that we then commit ourselves to focus on and strive for. And in a book written in 1970, he names this for us today, this desire, this longing that we have to be happy. But he says the temptation is to strive for happiness that is completely misdirected. It's aimed in another direction. And when that desire for happiness, that goal of happiness, that life of seeking after happiness is aimed in a different direction, he identifies this as a kind of an unbearable hell on earth. How ironic to take such a notion that so many of us, myself included, have taken for granted in our desire for ourselves and our desire for those that we love the most. And to be able to humbly say, we might be off the mark here in terms of what we're after. We may be worshiping at a construct or a goal or a level of experience that we've come up with culturally all by ourselves alone. Our lives and our wants need to be aimed and directed and connected to a source beyond themselves and beyond the lives that we design for ourselves. Theologians Rodney Clapp and Robert Weber talk about the church as a diacritical community. 
In their wonderful little skinny book, People of the Truth, The Power of God in the Worshiping Community, they say this, the critic calls attention to something that's wrong. The diacritical goes one step beyond criticism and distinguishes an alternative. According to, accordingly, the church intends not only to criticize and contradict the identities and visions of the world, but to present a distinct alternative identity and vision, the tension in our worship, that we could be tempted to focus on ourselves, not to us, Lord, but to you. Our worship of the living God together is intended to form us uniquely into the people of God, into the community of Jesus. It's not so much our gathering this morning, a voluntary association where we all just on our own decided that we we're going to show up today. Christians believe that there's some kind of power, there's some kind of purposefulness, there's some kind of longing and drawing that we experience that brings us together in order to do what we can't do on our own, and that is provide us with membership in a community that's bigger than ourselves and that points beyond ourselves to form us into the people of God. At the core of this is the notion of who God is. Victor Hamilton writes, the idolatry of the golden calf is not so much about worshiping some other God as it is with a failed definition of the God that Israel was called to worship. And the God that Israel is called to worship and the God who is made clear and available to us through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit is the God that we call the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Historically, this theme, Father, Son, and Spirit, has been at the center of each renewal, worshiping renewal movement over the course of history. At the core of our worship, the saying of the creed, which we recite together, the creed, the Nicene Creed, the center of our faith, is organized around the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's that historic vision of who God is that captures our imagination and that puts us on the same page with what God is doing in our lives. You can't read the book of Ephesians without seeing in time after time after time this participation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our Christian experience. Ephesians 2.18 says this, <laughs> through Jesus, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. It's the center, it's the focus, it's the source, it's the power of our worship. It's a correct vision, an estimate of who God is. God in three persons, shared blessing, other person-focused, sacrificial love, deep intimacy, perfect unity. This is the unique vision of the God that we worship. 
in this place, in this service today. Several years ago, there was a very prominent billboard that stood on the left side of Avenue Road, almost smack in the middle of the community in Toronto, Norn, known as Yorkville, not very far away from here. This is a community that in recent history, although in very, very unique and different ways, is a community that has been known to be populated by people who are trying to find or create something, find themselves or create something unique out of their lives. A big contrast in how they did it in the 60s and how they've done it since the 60s. But this community of Yorkdale associated with the kind of the fullness of human expression. Music, materialism, however you want to describe it. This is a theme in the contemporary, recent contemporary history of Yorkville. On this poster, which was for cosmetics, which had picture of a beautiful young woman who seemed to be very successful, very self-content, very self-defined, can I say also very self-obsessed, self-assured, kind of picture of the perfect person. And, and for, for months, I drove by that billboard and just glanced at it until one day I noticed that there were three words written along the bottom of the billboard. Me, myself, I. That's the contemporary trinity. Except instead of being three persons beautifully connected in a mutuality of love, it's three descriptions of the same person, which kind of sets human beings apart from one another and sets them up higher maybe than they should and makes the point that the great temptation of our lives is to worship ourselves. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, me, myself, and I. In worship, you have the dramatic choice of choosing one or the other. And Christians over the centuries have taken this choice. What do you love? Where you're going? Who were you created to be? What do you want? As being the central questions of what it means to be in the presence of the living God. Even though the ugly reminder that follows after us is that we make idolatries and that they're often in our own image. Whether it's Albert Schememann in his little book from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Liturgy and Life, Christian Development Through Liturgical Develop Christian Development Through Liturgical Development, or whether it is Evangelical Jeff Greenman's very recent book, The Pedagogy of Praise, or the early church's catechesis, depicted or referred to in Acts 2, after the disciples gather after the coming of the Holy Spirit, Christians have always seen and are fascinated by the way how the actions of our worship are intended to change us 
and to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so volumes have been written, and they continue to be written, and conferences are held, and they continue to be held in order to help us to see that what we do in worship is such a decisive practice for our very souls and not simply a bad habit that we've acquired when we get together and we don't really understand why we do what we do and why we do with who we do and what we do after we leave the place where we do what we do in worship. It's interesting to me, it has been for a really long time, that the passage in scripture that many biblical scholars identify as the oldest passage in the New Testament that we have is that part in Philippians 2 called the Christ Hymn. What that reminds us of is that that description of Jesus, who was very God, but humbled himself to take the form of a servant, is an insight that the church practiced and praised and passed on to one another in their worship. The Apostle Paul takes that worship expression and he places it in his argument in Philippians. But it's the reminder that in the midst of worship, we are always being transformed into the image of Jesus. When our culture is encouraging us to live deeply in the narratives of self-aggrandizement and self-definition and self-centeredness, at the center of our worship is this reminder that the center of God's heart is giving yourself in service for somebody else. That at the center of God's heart and what God's calling is in our lives is that someone has to die or at least someone has to die to themselves in order to experience the presence of God. You must know this in marriage. Someone has to die to themselves. And mostly it's two people that have to die to themselves for marriage to be a success. You must know this in parenting. Something has to die. Someone's agenda, someone's purpose, someone's desire, at least for a time, has to be given in service for somebody else. You know this in caring for the poor. You know this in loving your neighbor as yourself. At the center of the gospel, somewhere, something has to die. Something has to be given in servanthood. When we bring our offering forward, we're not simply giving God a few bucks. As Albert Sherman says, this action of the offering on a weekly basis by Christians reminds us that we are offering all of our lives, that there is not an aspect of our lives that we are not giving to God because God is the one who gave us our lives and everything else in the first place. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. In the two central sacraments in our Christian tradition here in the Presbyterian Church, baptism and communion, 
at the center of both of those realities is the reminder that someone dies. Someone dies to self in order to live for God and to live for others. Me, myself, and I is the furthest notion from the center of our experience and our practice of worship. In confession, something's dying. Someone's preference, someone's bad habit, someone's thinking about another person that gives them a little bit of an immoral high for a while, some obsession, some long-term or short-term plan, something's dying when you open yourself to who you are and to who God is. In scripture and in preaching, we're being invited to humble ourselves to somebody else's word. It's not our idea that we're bringing into the sanctuary. It's not our theology. It's not what we've always been thought. It's the opportunity to stand or to sit around God's word and to receive that word that we so desperately need for for life that comes from beyond us and yet seems to be aimed directly in the direction of our need and our calling. The scholar and theologian and church leader Tom Wright points out that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we should notice that prayer in the way of Jesus doesn't deny our needs and our desires doesn't deny the fact that we require daily bread, but what Wright argues is that in praying that prayer and practicing that reality over and over again as a Christian community, disciplined and dynamic and doxological in worship, we begin to pray away from our own stories and into the story of God's kingdom. So that our deepest desires for daily bread are transformed into a vision of daily bread and bread for the world that goes way beyond our own personal and sometimes petty needs. Let me share with you briefly, in conclusion, (coughs) a few gifts a few resources for how worship forms us. First of all, what what about an inventory of questions? Thinking about Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. Why don't we take that as a gift for us today seriously and apply that to the way that we come into the sanctuary? And so what are your assumptions as you come to worship? What are your expectations? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? How do you relate to various aspects of what we do together? How do you relate to our being together in the presence of God? What are you really longing for? What are you really after? Something you've already made your mind about that you just need a little bit of juice to help you get through the next 48 hours? Or something beyond that? Something that you can actually come up with on your own, with your own hands and your own psychology? Or are you after a vision that transcends this place, is beyond your capacity 
and is beyond the temptation that we all share to be just a little bit narrow when it comes to what we want and what we desire. Second thing is this, when we come to worship. At the center of our worship is Jesus. He's the focus. We're, we're his body. Everything about his life and death and resurrection fills this place and draws our attention. I just wanted to remind you how much we need Jesus. In the story of Exodus 32, God wants to punish Israel. He actually says, I don't know if you heard that in Brunel's reading, that God says to Moses, get out of my sight, leave me alone. I want a time to be truly burning angry with these people. But Moses stands in the gap between who God is and who human beings are. And he pleads with God to spare Israel. It always seems that we need somebody to stand in the gap to bring us to God. And Jesus is that person. The center of our community, the one who teaches us how to pray, the one who is that perfect exhibition of life with God is the goal, is the desire, is the pattern, is the purpose of our worship. St. Augustine, in his famous line, said this, which helps us and brings so many things together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, me, myself, and I, when he wrote this as a prayer to God, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have created us for yourself, O God, not for ourselves. You've created us for yourself, O God, and our lives are restless until they find their rest in you. You've created us for yourself, O oh God. Even though we try to find that rest and that peace and that contentment everywhere else, you've created us for yourself, O oh God. And we're never going to find that rest we want, that rest we desire, that rest we were created for until we open ourselves to experiencing that rest in you. You created us for yourself, O oh God. And we are going to be restless until we find that rest in you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.